This morning we're going to talk about the matter of worship, but specifically worship as it relates to music. We have been engaged in a series on what the Bible says about worship, answering that important question, what is worship, so that we can truly worship God. It is our ultimate aim. It's ultimately what we want to do as men and women, and certainly as Christians. But this morning we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about worship as it, or music as it relates to worship. And I realize it's controversial, uh, but nevertheless it is important. And since it's controversial, I want to start on a lighter note with this anecdote. I think you'll appreciate it. An old farmer went to the city one weekend and attended a large church. He came home and his wife asked him how it was. Well, said the farmer, it was good. They did something different, however. They sang praise choruses instead of hymns. Praise choruses, said his wife. What are those? Oh, they're okay. They're sort of like hymns, only different, said the farmer. Well, what's the difference, asked his wife. The farmer said, well, it's like this. If I were to say to you, Martha, the cows are in the corn. Well, that would be a hymn. If, on the other hand, I were to say to you, Martha, 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 oh, Martha, 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 the cows, the big cows, the brown cows, the black cows, the white cows, the black and white cows, the cows, cows, cows are in the corn, are in the corn, are in the corn, are in the corn, the corn, corn, corn. Then, if I were to repeat the whole thing two or three times, well, that would be a praise chorus. Coincidentally... And notice, I didn't write this because I don't use words like that. The same week, for those of you clappers, a young businessman from the city who normally attended a church with contemporary style worship music, I added music, was in the old farmer's town on business and visited the farmer's small town church. He came home and his wife asked him how it was. Well, said the young man, it was good. They did something different, however. They sang hymns instead of regular songs. Hymns, said his wife. What are those? Oh, they're okay. They're sort of like regular songs. Only different, said the young man. Well, what's the difference, asked his wife. The young man said, well, it's like this. If I were to say to you, Martha, the cows are in the corn. Well, that would be a regular song. If, on the other hand, I were to say to you, to clear my voice for this one, Oh, Martha, dear Martha, hear thou my cry. Inclinest thine ear to the words of my mouth. Turn thou thy whole wondrous ear by and by to the righteous, inimitable, glorious truth. For the way of the animals, who can explain? There in their heads is no shadow of sense. Hearkenest they in God's Son or His reign, unless from the mild, tempting corn they are fenced. Yea, those cows in glad bovine, Rebellious delight, have broke free their shackles, their warm pens askewed, then goaded by minions of darkness and night. They all my mild, chili wax, sweet corn have chewed. So look to that bright, shining day by and by, where all foul corruptions of earth are reborn, where no vicious animal makes my soul cry, and I no longer see those foul cows in the corn. Then, if I were to do only verses 1, 3, and 4, and do a key change on the last verse, well, that would be a hymn. 
and others applaud. <laughs> so now that I've systematically offended both sides, <laughs> we're ready. <laughs> but hopefully more so what that does is it helps us see that there's a point to be made on both sides. There could be confusion on both sides. Here's our aim this morning. Our aim is to begin. We won't get done. We'll look at 12 or so. That leaves me a little room. I think I have 13 on my list. But 12 or so, a dozen or so, unbiblical conclusions, if you will, or common misconceptions about musical worship. A dozen or so common misconceptions about musical worship I realize that's on the negative note, but we're doing that so that we can have a right understanding of musical worship, so that ultimately we'll know what God has said from the Bible, not necessarily our preferences, not necessarily our traditions, but what the Bible says about this matter. And again, that's not enough. That's not our ultimate aim. It's not enough to know what God has said. It's not enough to to expose these uh, wrong conclusions. Our ultimate aim would be to know what God says so that when we seek to worship God musically, we can do so faithfully and ultimately glorify Him. That is our ultimate aim. That's the ultimate aim for every sermon. It's the ultimate aim for everything we do. It's not just changing our thinking, though that's important. It's not just changing our behaving, though that's important. The ultimate reason why we're doing this or we do anything we do is we want to worship God the way He says. So that's what we're aiming to do, and I trust it will be interesting, maybe funny along the way, uh, but I trust that God will use it to shake us up a little bit, if need be, for His glory and for His honor. First common misconception about musical worship is that worship is music. Worship is music. And if you were here last week, basically that's just review. It is a common misconception to conclude that worship is Music, And what I mean by that, let me clarify, lest uh, I'm not clear, and I realize that's not very clear, it's just short. It's a misconception to conclude that the way we worship God is through music. We saw this last time in Romans 12.1. If you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn there. I realize some of uh, this series may stand alone in and of itself, so I want to make sure I, I reiterate this from last time. And I realize some of you weren't here last time, and... I realize it's something I, I talk about a lot. I love to talk about this particular issue, the glory of God and worship, because it's so often missed. See, what happens is, as you're turning to Romans 12, I'll set it up a little bit. What happens is, we talk and we act as if when we do music, that is worship. And then we talk and act as if nothing else is worship. And nothing else could be further from the truth. The way we should see life, all of life, is all of life is worship. And yes, we do include music, so music is one of the ways we worship God. And so we see this from Romans 12. We see it in verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that is to say, everything that Christ has done for you, He has transformed your life. You've been brought into the kingdom of, uh, of God. You've been brought out of the kingdom of darkness. You're now, you're now declared righteous before God. You're in a right relationship with Him. It's only by grace. It's only through faith in His perfect work on the cross. Because of that, in light of that, to present your bodies. That's another way of saying all of you as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of what? Worship. He's saying, if you are a Christian and, and you grasp Romans 1 to 11 e- 
even this much, if you, if you get it, you will rightfully, logically, supernaturally conclude that your whole life with all of you, all of your being is all about worshiping Jesus Christ. It's all about Him and everything that you do. And so that's why, and we can look at other passages, passages like 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's why it's a fallacy to conclude that the way we worship God is through music. The way we worship God is a fallacy in and of itself. We worship God with our lives. We worship God in everything. We worship God, or we should be thinking of this, uh, thinking of worship in this way, through child training, studying for an exam, working for a boss you like or don't like, cutting the grass, coming here, gathering, fellowshipping, serving. You fill in the blank, unless it's sin, as I said last time. It should count as worship. And one way that we worship God is through music. But when you come here today, right now, as you're listening, it should be worship. As I'm preaching, it should be worship. And not just the music side of things. And we seem to have really fallen... uh, We've just fallen away from biblical thinking when it comes to this. And by the way, this isn't some new thing that Pat has come up with. Historically, this is how Christians have thought. This is how Christians have, have spoken. Read, uh, read all kinds of different believers who have come before our generation and, the, and even in our generation, but in our earlier days, they didn't talk the way we talk. Uh, they, they, they didn't narrow, and, and narrow themselves down to say, worship is music. Just read any catechism. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to what? To glorify God. Oh, that's the ultimate. That's assuming that's in everything that we do. That ties in with 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink, do all of the glory of God. That's assuming that mindset. And so I can't urge you enough, therefore, brethren, <laughs> in light of the mercies of God in your life, worship God with your life. See worship as different than contemporary evangelical verbiage. Because when we're not seeing everything we do as an opportunity to worship God, we are limiting our opportunities for worship. Therefore, we are limiting worship to God. Doesn't that make sense? We need to change the way we think so that we change the way that we talk so that God is exalted in a way that He has not been exalted recently in our day. Well, I don't have a certain uh, order of importance, although I would put that one number one. I mean, that is just where we're missing it. We need a prophet to show up. We need a Jeremiah to show up and yell at us. So I'm not yelling right now. Maybe I should. You know, if I could just play Jeremiah for a minute. Stop talking about worship like you're a pagan. And I doubt Jeremiah would smile like I did. Say, repent of your unbiblical worldview. It's crazy. Open your Bible. I know that you folks are not biblically illiterate. Don't talk like you're biblically illiterate. It's all for worship. Even right now, my yelling, if it's sanctified, right? Does this make sense? Or do I just need to say it again? You're saying, please, no, by the mercy of God, keep going. Well, I will, but I'll never stop talking about this issue because it's the ultimate issue, giving God glory. Well, let's move on to number two. A second common misconception about musical worship is that musical worship is the priority. Who here would say that musical worship is the priority? Well, I wouldn't. I doubt anyone here would say it is the priority. So you say, Pat, how can you put it on your list of common misconceptions? 
Well, I just got a magazine in the mail the other day, a, a quote-unquote Christian magazine. It wasn't put out by any particular church or denomination. It was just broadly evangelical, I suppose I would call it. Sometime in the last couple of months, the magazine came to my house, caught my attention, and there was an article that really caught my attention, and it was called, What Kind of Church Should We Be Going To? It's going to tell us what to look for in a church. Oh, good. Number one on the list, number one thing on what to look for in a church, style of music. It is a common misconception. It certainly is a common misconception. If that's the number one thing on the list, say style of music is what you need to deal with when choosing a new new church, absolutely, we are thinking that worship music or worship in music is the priority. Otherwise, we wouldn't put it first on the list. I say, whatever happened to putting number one on the list, do they seek to exalt Christ and not men and women? Do do they seek above all else the glory of God? 1 Corinthians 10.31, it's about Him. Or how about if if we just went to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance. And he talks about the gospel. How about number one on the list? If you're going to say the glory of God and right up there, uh, sub-point number one, right up there because it's how we glorify God. A church that is consumed and has a serious passion, it is their number one drive, is the cross of Jesus Christ and what He did there. They, they boast in Christ and they boast in His death and in His substitutionary work and His resurrection and, and it is of first importance to that church. That's how it should be. That's how it should be. Whatever happened to that? Whatever happened to, to, to the fact, well, find a church where, where the pastor, uh, among other things, stands up and preaches the Bible. That would be on my list for sure. 2 Timothy 4.2 I solemnly charge you, pastor, in the presence of God and by His appearing and by His kingdom. Preach the Word. Preach the Bible. For a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. The professing people of God wanting to have their ears tickled, they will find teachers. They will heap up teachers in accordance to their own desires. That is to say, they'll, they'll find people, pastors, and tell them what they want to hear to help their self-esteem or whatever it is. And, and, and it is to be preach the Word. Why? If we preach the Word, it's going to exalt Christ. If we preach the Word, it's going to, it's going to, as it exalts Christ, it's going to put us in our place. We're sinners. And if we preach the Word, it's going to exalt Christ, put sinners in their place, and remind us all over and over again that it's all about the glory of God, not about our glory. I say, what happened to that? What happened to that? It's not about the style of music as the priority. I'll use a personal example of this, and uh, perhaps you can identify it. I, identify with it. Uh, back in April, Molly and I were attending a conference in Philadelphia, downtown Philadelphia, and we went to the historic 10th Presbyterian Church. And I'll go on record as saying I really, really did not care for their style of musical worship. It's not my preference. It isn't what I would pick. It'd be, it, it was tough for me. You know what? If I lived anywhere close to downtown Philadelphia and the preaching was anything like it was that weekend and anything like it has been in that church's history, you couldn't keep me away from that church. Even if I were a part of a different church, if they had a conference, they had an opportunity for me to come there, man, I would be there. Why? 
Because it was so clear in the preaching of God's Word, Christ being exalted, me, be put, uh, me put in my place, the glory of God was first and foremost, and I was in awe. The priority, folks, can't be musical worship. It just can't be. And I know some of you well enough to know that's exactly what you say about why you're here. I say, God bless you. It's the exact opposite of me in 10th Presbyterian Church. You say, I can't stand the musical worship here, but you know what? At least God's Word is preached, so I show up. Glad we can be friends. <laughs> Let's have our priorities straight, is all I'm getting at. The priority in the Bible is not style of music. There's just no way. But we have made style of music our idol. And we are worshiping and serving Style of music above God Himself, I believe, and we've got to repent of that and allow God and God alone to hold our affections. Well, let's move on to something else that is important. A third common misconception about musical worship is that lyrics don't matter. That lyrics don't matter, or that they matter little, or that they're not that important. And if you turn to John chapter 4, we've been there recently, but you'll see uh, one of the, the key watershed texts, I think, about this issue that we do need to take note of. And we need to remember that lyrics do matter. Content does matter, what we sing. I realize John 4 is not talking about singing, but he is talking about worship, without question. So it would relate to singing, it would relate to music. Because... Our mindset is kind of like this. Well, it doesn't really matter what says as long as your heart's right. Doesn't that sound like the way we would talk? You know what? As long as you're sincere, it doesn't really matter what you're actually saying because you know God knows our hearts. Well, that's an interesting perspective and it sounds right because that's what we hear said a lot. But here's Jesus interacting with the Samaritan woman. And Jesus, no doubt, knows she's sincere. The Samaritans were sincere. They sincerely believed only part of the Bible. And if I met her or you met her, if she were walking the earth right here in our postmodern bent society, it wouldn't be cool. It wouldn't be politically correct. It would not be advisable to question her. And what does Jesus do? Jesus basically tells her that the Samaritans are wrong and the Jews are right. And then in verse 24, if you just zero in on that, I don't want to re-preach what I preached here a couple of weeks ago. But it says in verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit. We talked about that already on a different occasion. And truth. And I underlined truth. I bolded truth. You say, what right does anybody have to question someone else's worship? Jesus does. If Jesus is the object of our worship, and we would all say that, right? What Christian wouldn't say that? He's the object of our worship. He has every right to say, here are the rules. He has every right to say, and, and here's how to do it. It makes no sense for us to say we worship as Christians. We worship Jesus. But you know what? We're going to do it our way. So as long as you're sincere, it doesn't have to necessarily be right. It doesn't have to necessarily be truthful. That is to say, it doesn't have to be biblical. And Jesus sets the record straight. Oh, it better be biblical. That's why the Samaritans were wrong, because they weren't following all of God's revelation. And so again, I'm not trying to be Mr. Bad Guy. I'm not trying to be negative at all, but we, we act as if, based upon the lyrics that are cranked out, that are pumped out by the worship industry, 
Go to the local Christian bookstore and just start flipping through the books. Turn on the quote-unquote Christian radio and start listening. And you try to give the benefit of the doubt, you know, artistic license, you know, and that kind of stuff. And, and you go, man, this is, that's not right. That's not biblical. Well, if it's not biblical, based upon John 4, it's disqualified as really being worshipped. Based upon what Jesus says. Jesus, in effect, is saying, you know what? You guys have been sincere. Samaritans are committed. And you know what? It's DQ'd. And I'm not saying Dairy Queen. Disqualified. You're, you're wrong. So sincerity isn't enough. We're going to work hard at having biblical lyrics to music. And I'm not suggesting we've arrived. We haven't arrived. But we're trying. We're trying hard, as a matter of fact, to say we're going to sing a song. And guess what? The words need to, to fit what is biblical. They need to be true and not false when it comes to speaking about God. That's why some of you end up singing a song and you've been singing it on the radio all week long and you come here and sing it and you're like, that's not right. No, your version's not right and we made it right. <laughs> we tweaked it a little along the way so that it could be orthodox so that we might sing it uh, is kind of how it ends up being. And, and we're committed to trying to do that. And it's not just with contemporary songs, it's with old songs as well. We'll talk about hymns and choruses next time. Uh, we won't do so today, really. But, you know, I, I've, in small group Bible studies that I've taught, let's say like Fundamentals of the Faith, which I love that class, I love to teach that. I wish I did teach it, but I don't teach that at this phase in ministry here. You know, I can't tell you how many people in a context like that where we've talked about the person of Christ, where people, although they're, they're orthodox in other areas of their theology and beliefs about Christ, without even knowing it, they speak heresy about Jesus Christ. And their proof text doesn't come from the Bible. Time and time and time again, I can't tell you how many times it's happened, they quote a hymn to me. So, what we sing matters, and what we sing, whether we realize it or not, does stick in our minds, and it even affects the way we read the Bible. So what we're trying to do as a church is to try to sing truth about Christ because certainly if it's going to be real worship, it's going to be truth about Him. Not only that, we're even trying to, to put a, an emphasis where the Bible puts the emphasis. We're trying to say, all right, 1 Corinthians 15, first importance, we better be singing a lot about the cross. Well, let's even have our church impacted in that way as well. So we are trying to make those things a priority so that when we worship God musically, it really counts and it's not just Samaritan sincerity disqualified. And I'm thankful. I'm thankful for folks who work in that area of ministry. I'm thankful that they do work hard at it. I'm thankful that they include me. I'm thankful that they include others. I'm thankful that you guys give some input. And I hope we don't become like we're trying to find you know, some kind of error under every rock and have a bad spirit about it. But we're, we're trying to sing truthfully because the truth does matter in worship. Let's move on to a fourth. A fourth common misconception about musical worship is that there is a Christian style of music. Some of you are saying, that's a misconception? <laughs> I'd say it's a misconception to conclude that there's a Christian style of music. What I mean by that is that there is a place in the Bible that tells us about style and what it's supposed to look like. In other words, if you really wanted to push it, I'm suggesting that there are no notes in the Bible. How many of you have study Bibles? 
I don't have one here. You have study Bibles? How many of your study Bibles came with an accompaniment CD? Thus the point. Now watch, that's just a new marketing idea for... <laughs> now there will be such a thing, I don't know. There are too many study Bibles, I think. There's one for every kind of ism or whatever it is. But the, the point being made, God, God could have, in his infinite wisdom, have told us exactly the style. He could have, have, have given us notation. He could have given us time and meter and all those kinds of things I don't know about, but I know to say in my sermon. He could have given us all of those things, but he didn't. You say, was that an oversight? I say it's not an oversight. It's showing his wisdom. It's showing his wisdom that this, this truth that never changes can fit any time, any culture, anywhere until he returns. It just shows the absolute wisdom of God. You can't find a Christian style of music per se. Listen to John Frame. Let me set up John Frame for you. This is his book on, on musical worship. John Frame, the classically trained in music, conservative Presbyterian theologian, says. Let me say it again. John Frame, the classically trained in music, conservative Presbyterian theologian, mind you, makes this good point. Scripture does not prescribe the use of any particular tunes or of any particular musical style. If anyone were going to say otherwise, I think it would be John Frame, the classically trained conservative Presbyterian theologian. Interesting. There's no notation, no prescribed style. And yet, so many times, we who say we believe in sola scriptura, and we'll go to the wall, it is Scripture alone, and Scripture alone is our authority. And here's the Christian style of music doesn't work. We're denying sola scriptura, I think, by doing that. If there is a Christian style of music, would somebody please enlighten me this week? But if there isn't, let's just be honest and say, there isn't a particular style. Apparently God left it up to preference. And therefore, we dare not say, here's what the Bible says, Here's what we say, and, 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 and it is biblical. Let's not do that. A word for that would be legalism. And if anybody gets mad in the Bible about legalism, last time I checked, it's the very guy we say we worship. His name is Jesus, and he's not just a guy. He's the God-man. He's the Savior. We've seen this multi, uh, at least a couple of times in Matthew. We've been studying Matthew recently as a church. You certainly see it in Mark as well. You you go away from the Gospels impressed with Jesus that His commitment is to the truth, not broader, not narrower. If it's true, it's biblical, and then from there you've got to leave it alone. Turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 7, verse 7. You'll see Jesus talking about this, this matter of worship. He's quoting the Old Testament as it would relate to saying things are biblical that aren't biblical, and he ends up saying it ends up being vain. It ends up being empty. It ends up being a waste of time. It ends up being an insult to God. And again, this sounds rather negative. I'm just trying to make a positive point that we have to, we have to acknowledge there isn't a Christian style of musical worship. We have to acknowledge that and just be honest. 
before God or we end up being legalists, I think. It says in Mark chapter 7, verse 7, But in vain do they worship me. Notice we are talking about worship. In vain do they worship me. It's empty, it's meaningless, it's pointless. Teaching as doctrines, that is to say the truth, right, biblical theology, the precepts of men. Remember who Jesus says that to. He says that to people who say they believe the Bible. He says it to people who say they believe all of the Bible, not Samaritans. These are the people who were the Bible scholars. And Jesus busted them, if you will, doing what we all kind of want to do so badly because we like certain things done certain ways and it's what we're used to and it's our tradition and our history and our preference. It's biblical, right? Those are the kind of people. Jesus was talking to people like us in many ways. We can't go there. We can't go there. There isn't a Christian style. Here's a, here's a controversial question for you. Where do you think Israel in the Old Testament got their musical style? We know that they sang to God. We'll even see a text. We know that uh, instruments were involved. Where, where, where do you think they, they figured out uh, you know, how many beats per measure? Where did they figure that out? I'll give you a hint. You know, it wasn't the angel Moroni. Um, that's just unorthodox. Let's say the angel Michael. Now we're talking about reality at least. Where did it come from? Well, the Bible doesn't say it came from anywhere. It doesn't talk about it. The logical conclusion is they learned of this God who chose them. They were pagans. And they responded with music that they were familiar with came from their culture. They knew a certain way to beat a drum and so they beat the drum and then now they said the truth to the drum beat. There's no, other, there's no other logical conclusion to figure that out and that troubles me, right? Should we just be honest? Kind of, it's like, really? It would make logical sense based upon the revelation that we do have. It just comes down to us needing to acknowledge. We need to come clean and say, I have a preference, and my preference is for this style. And I can say, that is wonderful. I'm so glad God gave us the freedom, and I can appreciate that. It's not necessarily the kind of style I like. Here's the style I like, and you can say, that's wonderful. Even if grates you the wrong way, you know what? God gave us the freedom, otherwise he would have given us notes. You just need to acknowledge that. We need to acknowledge that and, and come clean with that. And I realize we could quote verses like the Bible says, you know, don't love the world. I know it does say that. But too many times, First John, do not love the world is used as some kind of magical Bible verse to quote to people when you don't like something they're doing. You know, do not love the world. First John 2.15. It goes on to explain what he's talking about. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. That's what love for the world is. It's not a catch-all verse for you to to somehow condemn and damn everything you don't like that's popular. So just be careful, please. I'm just asking as a pastor. I'm asking as a Christian. You know, over the years I've been a pastor, I I try not to think about it because sometimes, I don't know, it's overwhelming. I've been a pastor for almost 15 years, 14 years. And not in public, but in private, I can't think of any more grief, any more heartache I've experienced over the years as a pastor than the heartache over people who are in bondage to legalism. 
that somehow their spiritual growth and development or their salvation is somehow bound up and tied to something that is extra-biblical to the point where they can't come to Omaha Bible Church or they can't go to some other church because their legalism keeps them from going there and it's not even a biblical issue. I've never yelled at anyone that I can think of. I've never uh, you know, argued or yelled, uh, gotten all upset with anyone in private. But in person, on a Sunday night when I'm driving home or laying in bed at night or whatever it may be or talking with my wife privately, I can't think of anything that has been more disturbing to me than that when it's something that's not even biblical, that is held as biblical, and they're in absolute bondage to that, it it, it will steal your joy, but it will steal your sanctification. We try to be hardline at Omaha Bible Church about the Bible. What does the Bible say? If the Bible says it, that settles it. We don't even say if the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. I don't care if I believe it or you believe it or anybody believes it. If the Bible says it and that's what it means by what it says, that settles it. But our danger is then to somehow get in the mode that everything is a biblical issue. Instead of seeing the freedom that God has given us where he hasn't spoken and you see the infinite wisdom of God and you say, you know what, that's not a biblical issue. That's healthy. That's good. That's right. Well, let's move on to number five. I have six to share with you this morning. Number five. It's not this morning anymore. It's this afternoon. But I've been doing this a little while this morning and into the afternoon. Number five, a fifth fifth common misconception about musical worship is that loud music is ungodly music. In case you didn't hear that, loud music is ungodly music. That's That's a biblical conclusion that is not biblical. Some of you are saying, I thought it was, you know, because it's that teen culture and they play everything loud and, you know, surely God isn't pleased with that. I understand. Let's see what the Bible says. Psalm 95. If you have a Bible, turn to Psalm 95, then Psalm 98, then Second Chronicles chapter 30, and then some conclusions based upon that. I'm more and more convinced the more I read the Bible and the more I read, for example, the book of Revelation, that heaven is going to be loud and it's going to be tough on some of you. It's going to be loud, so you know what? Instead of getting whiplash on your way there, <laughs> you might want to kind of you know, get up to speed on this whole thing. Psalm 95 verse 1 says, Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Psalm 98, if you just turn over there a couple of pages, Psalm 98 verse 4, one of the loudest psalms I know of. Psalm 98, 4, shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth, break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. It's tied, music is tied to being loud, shouting. And then I want you to turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verse 21. If you're new to the Bible, you can start in Genesis, and it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, then 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. I suppose I should have sent you the other direction, but I don't know them in backward order. <laughs> now, as you're turning there, we're not going to go there today per se, but it's interesting, those two psalms that I quoted, and those were just samplings, it is interesting that he ties your loud singing with joy. Joy in the Lord and what the Lord has done we may be able to start connecting dots where there is no 
full throttle, if you will, passionate praise to God, which is what I think is driving the volume. Maybe it's because there's no joy in the Lord. I don't think that's pushing things out of bounds to suggest that, but we'll do that at a different time. Second Chronicles 30, verse 21. The sons of Israel pres- present in Jerusalem, 30, 21, celebrated the feast of unleavened bread for seven days with great joy, and the Levites and the priests praised the Lord. Did I tell you to go to the wrong place? Second Chronicles 30, verse 21. Am I quoting the right verse? Okay. I, hear the pa- I, I felt the wind moving thought all the Bible turning was, was wrong. But you see, there they are at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Levites and the priests praise the Lord day after day. And notice it says, with loud instruments to the Lord. Do we need to do a little demo? Do we need to have Jonathan Green come back up here? No. It's loud. Now, some of you say, well, I have an objection. My objection is that's in the Old Testament. And don't you know, this is New Covenant. Well, you know, I appreciate the fact that you see a distinction between the church and Israel. But, you know what? I turn to the Old Testament because 2 Timothy 3.16 says all Scripture, primarily they're referring to the Old Testament, is profitable. Okay? That's a starting point. Because little details given in the New Testament, either promoting or prohibiting... Because even though I know some of the Old Testament commands are not for us directly, I can certainly therefore see that God, at least at one point in time in history, was pleased with it. And furthermore, because I think the New Testament supports it. We won't take the time to go there, but read the book of Revelation sometime, just asking yourself the question, how loud is it? What you end up seeing, at least 21 times in the version I'm preaching from, you see loud at least 20 times in the version I'm preaching from, loud voices. And you see it used to describe the voice of the Father, the voice of the Son, the voice of angels, and the voice of the redeemed. Thus, heaven is a loud place. And they're worshiping in heaven. Not only is there, are they worshiping, God is loud. The Son is loud. The saints are loud, no doubt, fueled by the Holy Spirit. Trinitarian loudness. It's a loud thing. Got to keep it in mind. Heaven's a loud place. Why aren't we loud here when we talk about the great Redeemer that we have? To say that loud equals ungodly is to say that God is ungodly, which is logically ridiculous. Loud is good. I like loud. I I, I, I love it loud. That's a rock song, I think. Let's not have them have all the good titles. I really want it loud. I like it so loud that they make me sit on the front, lest I frighten some of the children in the back. I mean, I want to sing. If I'm singing, I love to go to a conference or something, you know, and there's all these people there, and they're into it. They're into what, it could be a conference on theology. Man, these, they're singing. In fact, those are the loudest conferences, because they're thinking rightly and bigly, if you will, about God. So I actually want to belt it out. I'll scare you if I sit somewhere other than probably right there. You know, this is, I'll just tell you an interesting story. Not too long ago, I think we had a guest speaker. Maybe it was when Byron Yawn was here. And something was going on. He didn't have the microphone or whatever. And so I went back there and, and, and went back there to the sound booth to get the microphone. And I just stayed back there for a while, getting a different view. And I'm singing, and all of a sudden, I've got people doing this. <laughs> you know what was interesting is? It seemed to get louder as I was back there. 
I'm not suggesting all of our music needs to be loud all of the time. But if we're never loud, we don't look a lot like people who belong to heaven. Maybe it's because we have no joy in the Lord. Loud is good. I like the Puritan Thomas Watson. I doubt he would necessarily like our loud. But nevertheless, when he said, How lively are many when they are about the world. But in the worship of God, how drowsy. Let me read it again and I'll make Thomas Watson a bit more contemporary. And I'll, I'll, make, him fit, I'll make him be missional, to borrow a, a word that's overused <laughs> and contemporary. Oh, Thomas Watson, the missional preacher. All right, that sounds good. That sounds cool. All right, let's make him fit Omaha, Nebraska. Let's make him fit the state of Nebraska. How lively are many when they are about the world, like when they go to Memorial Stadium. But in the worship of God, how drowsy. I'm all for going to Memorial Stadium, and I'm all for yelling for the right team, which isn't Iowa, Pat. <laughs> I went to a Husker game one time and noticed a Husker game with Pat, and he's an Iowa fan. He's all decked out in, in black and gold, and I thought I was going to get beat up. <laughs> I lit, Remember? I went, we went to the Husker shop, and I bought like a Nebraska hat. <laughs> it was not cool. Anyway, <laughs> point being... God, I think God made us passionate. We're passionate about things. And you go to the game and you're all for it and it's great. I'm not downplaying that. Hey, root for the right team to the glory of God. And we all know who... Never. <laughs> but you get the idea, you know. I'm passionate about different things in life. Uh, today, you know, I'm so passionate it's messing with me. We were singing today, like the first song, and there's a picture of a dock with calm water. Would you guys please take that down? <laughs> I mean, that messes with me so bad because to me, I'm just licking my chops thinking about wakeboarding, you know. I'm like, man, were you thinking about it, guys? Maybe not. Ben was. <laughs> and Josh, the wakeboarders sit over here. Anyway, point being, you know what? I'm all about that. I love, I have a passion for those kinds of things, just like you have a passion for other things. There's nothing wrong with that. Hey, do all that you do to the glory of God. But something is, is horribly amiss. When I can be passionate about those kinds of things that won't last for eternity, and when I come here, I just join the frozen chosen. How great thou art. What is that? It doesn't make any sense at all. What are we even talking about? This is just hobby horses for me, I guess. No. <laughs> Misconception is that loud equals ungodly. I think you'll find the exact opposite thing to be taught in the Bible. Well, finally, number six, the common misconception. If it hasn't been controversial yet, it will be now. Number six, percussion instruments are ungodly. Percussion instruments are ungodly. That's a common misconception. I know because uh, I've met enough people who have come to Omaha Bible Church who have not come back again because of that thing or those things. Psalm 150, we read it this morning. Verse 5, praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. All right. One popular study Bible written by a conservative says this about that verse. Verses 3 to 5 in chapter 150. Some of you have the study Bible, so you can see it right now. Here's what the writer says. Israel's music was apparently loud and rhythmic produced primarily by percussion and stringed instruments, 
but most of all by an organ. <laughs> no, it doesn't say that. That's me being a, a redactor, adding something to it. No. Just take away all the trappings of all of our preferences and you say, I wonder what their musical worship was like. Rhythmic. Apparently loud. First Chronicles 15.16 says, Then David spoke to the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their relatives, the singers, with instruments of music, harps, lyres, loud-sounding cymbals to raise sounds of joy. So now we have loud and we have percussion. You absolutely see it in Scripture. And again, apparently God was pleased with it at least at one point in time. And when I go to my New Testament, I realize some things have changed from Old to New Testament. Like we don't have a sacrificial system anymore. And because, and that's because of Christ's atoning death, so we don't need to keep sacrificing. I'm all for it. It's not in the New Testament because there's a reason it's not in the New Testament. It's, but I don't conclude, therefore, because God talked about it in the old and, and he, he is not pro or con in the new. In fact, uh, there would be some, some at least hints that he would be okay with it based upon volume and things like that. I don't conclude, well, obviously it can't be. I mean, it's not, if, if anything, well, it wouldn't be like, well, you know what? They were really passionate about musical worship in the Old Testament because of God's great grace. And then when you get to the new, you know, after Christ died, pff, now we're not going to really be passionate. If anything, it would be louder. If anything, it would be more intense. But I wouldn't want to die for that kind of argument. If Omaha Bible Church is compromising by having percussion instruments, then God is a compromiser. That's what I would want to go on record as saying. We don't want to be broader than God, but we don't want to be narrower than God as well. And It just makes me so sad. Those examples. It makes me so sad When someone says, well, because of drums, that's compromising and we, we can't be at the church. And they tell me they're going back to their church, which I know is a church that doesn't teach the Bible. I'll never forget the day, and I've shared this example before, but I'll share it again. The day when there was a person who talked to me after a service and the person said, really enjoyed the preaching, but it's too bad you've sold out to the world. I said, what do you mean? The music. What do you mean by that? And then she pointed drums. We were able to step off to the side a little bit. And I said, you know, I want to talk to you about this. And um, it's not our main priority anyway. You know, our main priority is worshiping God in lots of different ways. And the preaching of God's word, you heard it here today and so on. And I said, you know, if we could look at the Bible, you know, at least in Psalm 150 and some other passages, you do see percussion instruments used, and God was pleased with that. And this person didn't know what to say to that. It was becoming more and more evident that they had bought an argument from someone, or it was an argument in their mind. And it was one of those kinds of things where it's as if to say, don't confuse me with the facts. I know what I believe. And I pushed a little bit more, hopefully gently, hopefully graciously. And then she showed her cards and she said, Well, John MacArthur says. She was not interested in talking to me about the Bible. She pulled out her trump card, John MacArthur. 
well, you know what? That didn't work either. Her trump card ultimately was self-authority and preference. Because in the providence of God, I was able to say, well, that's interesting because I was with John MacArthur last week. He's a friend. I was at his church and there were drums on the stage. You know, at that point in time, I'm thinking, am I really enjoying this in the flesh? (laughs) Or am I still sad? I was really sad. Those are the kind of things that just break my heart. She looked like she'd seen a ghost. Because her unbiblical worldview just got smashed because she was putting her authority supposedly in someone else who didn't even hold her view. It was in herself. Now she's all messed up. Those are heartbreakers. What we want to do, men and women and boys and girls, is say, what does the Bible say about any one given issue and do our best by the grace of God to submit to it and go to the wall for it, yes, which we will do. But where the Bible doesn't say, we must be very, 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 very careful to say anything with authority. And we've got to say, you have your preference, I have my preference, we disagree, isn't it great that God gave us the freedom to do that? And we can agree on the truth. That's a right and good Christian worldview. Well, we'll do more next time. I hope this was helpful. Let's pray and we can be done for this morning. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity we have to to start with nothing in one sense other than your word and to simply begin working through it and asking questions and gathering data and be able to say, this is what the Bible says. And it may need to change us and it may need to tweak us here and there, but it's so good to know at the end of the day that our faith is not built upon what someone else has said. Faith is built upon what Christ has done and His perfect and final revelation of Himself. We want to worship. We want to worship that is in a way that is true worship, exalting You, the great God of our salvation. Amen.